0: What's going on, everybody? It's Johnny King. Another show, another episode of the Johnny King Show. I am stoked to have Boo Arnold in the house. Boo, nice to have you here.
1: Great to be here.
0: He's uh, he's got quite the resume, but you wouldn't know it. He's uh, from what my experience of you, you're you're very humble. Very, uh, you're not going around showing off your what all you've done, but it's pretty, pretty cool what you've been able to accomplish in your life. And you're from, you said just outside of San Antonio, Texas, correct?
1: Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Just yeah. Uh, on the friend in a small town, Bernie, Texas, just outside of Bernie, San Bernie, Texas. Yeah. Good yeah. old Texas. That's awesome. And
0: you've got, uh, you've got a beautiful wife and a bunch of kids.
1: I do. I, I've been married for 19 years and I've got four kids, two daughters, 16 and 14, and then two boys, 10 and eight. Oh man! So uh, we're 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 running uh, crazy, uh,
0: keeping think, you busy.
1: Yeah, I think everybody's involved in a sport or two. I've got a daughter in theater, yeah. and they go to an academically uh, challenging school, so lots of homework. So literally, we're on the treadmill; it never yeah. stops. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, Boo and I had a conversation before we started recording this this one um, a week or two ago, and we just got connected through a mutual buddy of mine who said, "Like, dude, you got to connect with this guy. He's uh, he's just." one of the most genuine uh you know personable people you'll ever meet but he's got such he's successful in business he's been successful in his family life and we really I just really commend you and and it was inspired because you found a way to have what I feel like I talk to a lot of men about about like the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment you've achieved a lot and maybe at times you sacrificed all the things in your life but it does seem like um I'm sure you've you can speak to that as we get going, but it seems like you've also found a a happy place in life where you're around family and you're available to your kids, which I didn't have growing up, you know, with, with my dad being a workaholic. So Mm -hmm. would you say that's accurate.
1: Yeah. On the success side, uh, you know, if if I just, Jump into that compartment alone. I don't know yeah. that I feel all that successful. I think a lot of men feel that way, <laughs> no matter what you've accomplished or achieved, and never, yeah. I can, you know, my I, I didn't meet my goals. And you know, I played college baseball. I wanted to get drafted. That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, in the entertainment industry, I, a buddy of mine's very successful. He's on a uh, a television show on a television show that ran for twelve years, and uh, so that syndicated. And that was sort of my aim, and I never got there. So you know, success in business is pretty tough, especially when there's comparison and goals and stuff. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm glad that I got, I've been able to do some of the stuff I've done because of the experience. But I agree with what you said that, you know, if you're looking for purpose and meaning uh, and and you're trying to find it in work success alone, I don't think that that, that's it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And what I found is the more responsibility i have in regard to helping and loving and serving others especially my wife and kids would be primary yeah that that's where the reward is and there's a lot of fulfillment there in giving and investing in the lives of my kids Mm. and uh and and that would be true for other people outside of my family but for me i think probably the most rewarding thing i've done is, is to raise four children
0: yeah i think that's it's it is one of those um I think it's just a big part of legacy, if you will if 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 a if a man who's listening to this is focused on legacy I, you know children may or may not be uh in your in your picture if you're listening to this, but I do feel like supporting and mentoring future generations to be better off to to leave the planet better off than how we found it, I think is a pretty powerful thing so um well, it's cool, and I think just again it's all you're right it's all relative. Comparison is the thief of joy. Uh, I think there'd there'd be a lot of people who would look at like you played D one, like I played D three. I would have loved to. I I couldn't. (laughs) I couldn't choose which sport. I played too many sports. You know, played five sports in college, and um, I'm sure there's most people (laughs) in let's say Hollywood in Los Angeles who would give anything to have your your acting uh, resume and career too, right? So it's all it's all it's funny how people look at it right but it, mm-hmm. it does sound like you've <clears throat> you've learned but at the end of the day it's like what would you what would you trade for the family probably none of it you know family yeah changed. yeah
1: no I that, that's my 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 crown is my family that's that's, that's awesome. the achievement yeah yeah that's so cool
0: well I want to get to it into it a little bit more deeper but why don't you tell the the listeners or the viewers a little bit more about your journey because you you played baseball you went to um you also got your master's degree in divinity. So you did uh, seminary. And then just kind of tell a little bit of your, your journey, if you
1: don't mind. Yeah. So what's funny is if you look at my bio or you read my resume, you think, gosh, this guy had it together. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and then that, that's what resumes are supposed to do, I think, <laughs> right. biographies. But that's not the case. Yeah. I've been vocationally confused most of my life. Mm. I've had some real crises and moments where I didn't know what to do. Um, so, you know, I've had to make some big decisions. So it's, it's been a rough road in some ways for me, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I was a big sports guy growing up. Uh, sports came very naturally to me. I played football, basketball, and baseball in high school. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, I played baseball in college. You know, you say, yeah, you played D one baseball. Well, I did letter my sophomore and junior year, but I got cut my senior year Mm -hmm. in a coaching change. So, Again, you, you look at just uh, a couple of words and you go, wow, that that's that looks great. But there's a story behind even. in. Ba- so I, I, my dream was always to play professional baseball. I was a very average D1 player, yeah. but I would have loved to have played single A ball for a year or two, went to the Phillies camp uh, by invitation from a, an older coach that I had who was then a scout, didn't get picked up. So, uh, But my last year in college, I was in fraternity. I, got, I told you I got cut from baseball. That was pretty painful. I can remember walking away from the new coach's office. I had to walk about five blocks home. And as a 22-year-old, just tears streaming down my face because yeah. I loved sports so much. And I knew that that was the end. Mm. Uh, so a real kind of moment of mourning, the loss of something that I loved. But then, of course, when you lose something that you love, suddenly there's some disorder in your life and you've got to figure out, okay, now what am I going to do, right? You know, I've I've lost that dream and I've got to go in a new direction. I was in a fraternity and I'd kind of moved away from that. Just the habits of that particular social group were less appealing to me. And uh, so I, uh, I, I got involved in a church and I started working with a youth group Mm -hmm. which really was, was good for me. And then it opened the door to my working with young life. I don't know if you're familiar with young life. Uh, It's an outreach to high school kids, a a Mm -hmm. Christian outreach to high school kids. And I did that, uh, moved to San Antonio, had a training program. I did that for two years and then worked as an area director on staff with young life for three years. But during that period, I started taking seminary classes because uh, I had a real, uh, I guess, uh, sort of crisis of faith.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My worldview was, um, confused. I didn't know, you know, th- there are the four big questions in life. Where do you come from? Uh, who are you? What's your identity? What's your purpose and what's your destiny? Mm-hmm. Those, those four questions were really underdeveloped for me. And I didn't know how much confidence I had in, in, in the answers at that particular time that uh, I had to each of those questions. So, I, I needed more uh, experience and education. So I, I went to Gordon-Conwell in Boston and I got a master's degree in divinity. Um, <clears throat> I didn't even know what a master's degree in divinity was when I was 20 years old. <laughs> right. And suddenly yeah. I'm in a seminary, but just to make that quick, uh, you study church history, philosophy, the original language is Greek and Hebrew because yeah. you're learning to translate from original texts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, uh, uh, did I say church history at yeah, church history? Yeah. So it's a, uh, it's actually a, a pretty general degree in that though it's a master's degree, but uh, I was able to study the last 2000 years of church history, wow. read the early Christian fathers, uh, understand Luther and Aquinas and really understand foundationally uh, where my, where my faith was. And I had some intellectual history, on which to ground it. And that was really helpful for me. I also lived in a very diverse city with diverse point of views. I had friends who were atheist, Catholic, uh, who were, uh, you know, more liberal and secular. So those exchanges were really good for me. I, I love the diversity and the friends that I made there. After I finished that, that, uh, degree, I went to work with the foundation out of DC and I spent three years back and forth working in Bosnia. And I don't know if you know anything about that war there, but it, it ended in the 90s. But it was, uh, it was a division between um, ethnic groups and then re- ethnic groups tied to various religions. So the Croatians were Catholics, the Serban, Serbians were Eastern Orthodox, and then you have Muslims in that region. Mm. And when Russia fell, that region, which was comprised of Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, and Serbia, I don't know if I left one out because they didn't have the pressure to hold together as a union because Soviet communism was no longer a threat. Each state started hustling for its independence, Mm -hmm. but with that breakup came a fight over resources. And then the propagandists in that region started telling each people group, the Serbs are going to come take your land, the coastline, or, Mm. you know, the, the, all the Muslims that were, that were there that, you know, you're going to be run out because you're not, you weren't originally here. This is the land of the Croatians and the Serbs. So, anyway, yeah, I, great lesson on how people use religion hmm. and ethnicity to divide people. Right. And then how leaders can use propaganda to create a situation that moves into war and ultimately genocide. I mean, there was hmm. some genocide in that war. It finally ended. We gathered young people there for three summers hmm. and uh, we talked about these issues. Uh, we, again, uh, we, we would go visit uh, a, a mosque, a, a Catholic church, an Eastern Orthodox church. We had Muslims with us. We had uh, Croatians, uh, Serbians, and then we'd bring Western Europeans and then some Americans. So a bunch of young people all together, you know, explaining who they are, where they're from, their, their worldview, and then really working to understand each other because it's really hard to hate somebody that you know.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, if I isolate my own tribe that I can very easily hate you. If people are telling me who you are,
2: mm-hmm. if I
1: go and I extend my hand to you and I spend a week or two weeks with you and I get to know you and who yeah. your parents are, and you know, brothers and sisters, what you enjoy, suddenly you're humanized. And, and I, it, it's harder for me to hate you. So, uh, anyway, these, these are issues we discussed after that three years, I quit my work with the foundation. I, uh, Bought a business from my brother, which I still have. It's a wholesale tour and travel business. Mm. And then I was, again, kind of at a transition. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm, I was in San Antonio at the time. I was 30 years old, single. Uh, mm. So I didn't have the responsibility of a family. And I really felt like I was kind of standing still. I, had, I was making enough money to take care of myself. But uh, I, I thought, man, I got to do something more than this. Uh, so I made a list of some things that i had always wanted to do that I'd never really had time to do. And one of those things was acting. Mm-hmm. And I think this was providential. So I, I, I uh, called somebody about an acting class. I signed up for the class. I, I attended the class in San Antonio. And I met this wonderful woman who was a stage actress from Chicago. She wasn't teaching the class to make money necessarily, uh, or I don't know, it could be a, a lot of ill motive, but she loved the art of acting, stage acting and film and television, and man, it was contagious, and I, I, I really bought into her, and her, you know, her contagious enthusiasm impacted me, and then I found a parallel between acting and sports, so <laughs> in sports, you perform right with your body, you're you know, your manipulating mid- your body to accomplish a goal, be it in baseball or whatever. Well, in acting, you're doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. You're communicating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot more delicate and it also involves speaking and emoting, you know, yeah, but at the same it. time you're performing and then people are watching you perform and they're, you know, telling you whether, you know, if it, if it has an impact on the audience that it's effective
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: and I, and, and then you go in and you audition and it's, it's, you know, it's like playing a sport you, you perform and then they say you win, you lose. And and I like that kind of challenge. So mm-hmm. Started acting, had quick success, booked some TV commercials. I booked an independent film in Austin. After about a year and a half of this, contacted my buddy I was telling you about who's really successful in television. He didn't usually answer his phone, but he did. (laughs) I made the big decision, and again, talk about crossroads, uh, I made the big decision to move to L.A. And my friend told, and again, when I say providential, I think a lot of people think that God may be an impersonal power out there or it's the universe in general, but I really believe God is personal Mm -hmm. and that I can relate to him and he can relate to me. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, in the Old Testament, the Jews uh, saw God as beyond them and powerful and and in some ways threatening and other. um, And so they were real careful in the way that they related to God. But then when Jesus Mm -hmm. comes along, he challenges the religious establishment when he starts to refer to God as his father,
2: mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very
1: intimate and personal thing, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the way that I relate to God. I, I relate to God as a father who loves me. Well, in this uh, moment with, with this decision um, something I prayed a lot about you know, whether or not I moved to LA, I knew that it was a left turn in life. I had some fear because I thought here I am. I'm, I, maybe I was 32. I said, this could be a fool's errand right here. I, I could move to LA and waste my time out there. And people were telling me, "I didn't even know you had an interest in acting. You just started doing this, and now you're going to bet your life on it by moving to Los Angeles. Are you crazy?" And so I had that that part of my audience speaking totally. to me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I moved out to LA, and uh, um, fortunately, I had a referral to an agent who happened to dump me the day that I arrived. So that was that was not encouraging. <laughs> right. But every night I would pray. I'd go, "All right, Lord, I'm here." if I'm not supposed to be here, make it clear to me tomorrow, because I don't want to be wasting my time and spinning my wheels. And, uh, I would, that summer, that first summer, I booked a couple of TV commercials, mm. which kept me in there. And, uh, and then I did some modeling too on the side. It took me three years to get a theatrical agent. That's the hardest thing to secure in the city of Los Angeles. It's quite miraculous how it happened. I won't go into that, but, uh, <laughs> through a strange turn of events and me making an effort, uh, kind of this serendipitous thing occurred and I booked the first television show and I referred the, the casting director to an agent that I didn't have.
2: Mm-hmm. He
1: got the phone call and he took me. <laughs> and so that kind of got me off and running. And, and I think I've got over, I don't know, 45 or something credits on my resume. But I spent 15 years there. Yeah. After 15 years, then we moved back to Texas five years ago um, just to raise our families here. And I have to say the timing was perfect. Hmm. because i'm glad i don't live in la with all the lockdowns that they have with seriously, four kids. Right? seriously yeah, yeah anyway yeah. i threw a lot at you but that's kind of a quick summary
0: no and i was always uh wanting to almost interrupt you because there's so many little things in there but i've got the the picture and and i and i want to go back to to ask about there's there's critical moments and <laughs> yes i hear you say like you kind of feel like you've been maybe all over the board and yet I kind of feel that way too, in my life, in that I kind of like the I like the variety um and so for better or for worse, um you know I think those that are listening to this may may resonate and say, yeah i'm I'm struggling to figure out the clarity in my life too at times, but what I love about your story is that whatever you decided you just went for, and you know maybe you realized that's not where you wanted to go, so you just pivoted right, mm-hmm. and you've been pivoting but you still, you've still been a good, you know, I'd say a lot of people would say you've been very successful in a lot of these different things, um, has made you to be the man that you are today. So I wanted to rewind all the way back to the beginning of what you talked about, you know, having kind of bet your life at that point on baseball, your dream being to, to make it in the pros and to get cut as a, as a senior, um, you said you were a, a kind of a middle road average D one baseball player, right? What do you feel like um, that you could have in retrospect could have used, whether it be mentorship, were, were you just not athletic enough? What do you feel like was what kept you from taking it to the next level?
1: Uh, honestly, talent. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, you've got to be realistic at some point. Like I said, I mean, maybe I could have played single-A or double-A ball. But, uh, you know, I played against Robin Ventura. Mm -hmm. I played against some, you know, MLB athletes. And, you know, I I could see – and I I have a son that plays select baseball right now. So we're constantly measuring their skills. But, you know, I had probably a major league arm from the outfield. I wasn't fast. That hurts you. And I had a – I could get hot with my bat, but I was streaky. Mm-hmm. And so uh, after, you know, so many years of baseball and measuring yourself against others, you do kind of find out where you are in the hierarchy.
2: Mm-hmm. And, you
1: know, I guess maybe my, my fault to a fault, I'm a realist, but I think that I kind of probably maximized my abilities and reached the highest level, given the talent that I had at the time.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, and sometimes you, you, you maximize the talent. That you're able to tap into then for for me too because I feel like oh I was a, I was a pretty decent naturally athletic but I never had the type of mentorship or coaching that really was like okay over this summer we're gonna yeah. be really fast we yeah be that's really changed quick. now you're right yeah yeah so could you have gotten faster yes could you have gotten less streaky with with the bat probably you know it's yeah. like you very well because I mean how many guys I mean are, are really not you know they don't rest on the laurels of being really really athletic they mm-hmm. just work their asses off and they make it into the major leagues right or whatever like so yeah. i can see both sides right but then you also have those phenoms who are like coming out of the womb swinging a baseball bat you know seems like yeah. so you no know, i talk about
1: this tension with uh, a lot of people and i'll give you three areas where people are trying to live a dream mm-hmm. and they're they're caught between Am I, am I risking and believing that I can accomplish something or am I a fool? Yeah. And I'll give you the three areas. These are people that, so entertainment is one,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a lot of people in LA hanging in there. And how long do you hang in there? <laughs> right. You know, if, totally. you're, if you're 62 and you've never booked a job or at that point, are you a fool? Mm-hmm. Did you, you know, or are you still hanging on to the dream and fight? I, I don't, you know. And again, these are subjective sorts of answers for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know guys. So I, I live on a golf course and I'm involved with our club, but the PGA tour, a lot of mm-hmm. young guys mm-hmm. out there, you know, they played college golf, you know, D1 college golf. And then I, they just had an event at our club last year. And I went out and watched these guys play. Mm-hmm. And it was, it wasn't even, it was like a, God, I I don't even know the tour. It was like a mini, mini tour, man. I'm seeing LSU bags. You know, University of Georgia bags, you've got guys that are fantastic golfers all competing at a lower level. And so, again, these young guys are saying, how long do I put my life on hold and chase this? Mm. And uh, and then what? Uh, and then I guess the other would be baseball or kind of what we're talking about. But anyway, I mean, these are it's a tough game, right? When am I? How long should I push? How long should I fight? How long should I, you know? look for the appropriate resources and people that can help me and really strive. And, you know, and when do I finally recognize that this is, you know, and and this moves into a bigger uh, issue, but the issue of vocation. Yeah. So, you know, we have our occupations. That's the thing we do to make money, but vocation, I don't know if you know anything about it. So the Latin root for, for vocation is Fox, you know, So, Bono, Bono renamed himself Bono Vox, good voice, right? So, Vox's voice or to call. And so, the Catholic Church really uh, looks at this in depth, but they believe that everyone has a vocation or that there's a voice that's calling everybody to something specifically. Mm -hmm. So, I think we choose, I don't think baseball was my vocation. Uh, It was something I love, but I didn't even consider the the definition of vocation at 22. Mm -hmm. I was just chasing what I wanted to chase. Sure. But I think that, you know, when people are really trying to discern what they're supposed to do, where they're going, and they're in these major crossroads and decisions in life, I think you have to consider vo- the vocation. And that takes some real serious thought and help. Mm. W- what am I called to do? Right. And sometimes your vocation separate from your occupation. Your occupation may be to, you know, I don't know, to, to work at the car wash, and that's where you, you make your money. But your vocation may be to work with, us, uh, you know, handicapped kids at, at such and such, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think God's placed within mm-hmm. everybody talents, but then also spiritual gifts and those spiritual gifts when we exercise those, I really believe, give our lives meaning. So that's a that's a huge topic, but something to consider.
0: Well, and I think that's kind of what we what I was wanting to get into is like um, to 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 put all your chips in for baseball Uh and then as a senior i can only imagine you know what what you said that was probably the biggest who knows right but one of the bigger disappointments you had experienced Uh in the in the human experience thus far was getting Uh cut as a senior um but i can also understand i've seen that happen even you know in the smaller schools that i've been to at some point like a new coach, especially, he wants to work a program and invest in kids. And if yeah. you know, senior comes in, and you're like, "You're talented, yeah. but I only have one year, one season to work with you." It's like, "I'm sorry, man, but I got to." But, but then again,
1: you, you know, you, that leads to uh, again a much bigger question. Mm. So, not That's only true. are we making decisions, but our circumstances are making decisions for us as well. True. true. And then you have to ask yourself, is there some divine plan behind? that's engineering your circumstances Mm -hmm. and with wisdom, can you interpret Mm -hmm. what's going on? Mm -hmm. And again, you know, that involves vocation, you know, seeing what's happening in your particular circumstance and doing your best to wisely make a decision that really allows you to flourish and find where it is you're supposed to be in life. Right. Right.
0: So, I mean, in looking back on your life, I mean, do you feel like it seems like you would say you've been, led guided right yeah you know and sometimes
1: i felt completely lost so i think in retrospect you see that more yeah i uh, certainly you know when you're in a moment and confused you don't feel led
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know i've had some periods where i i you know i wondered if god was even there or existed You know, right, right. right. Like, i feel lost you're not speaking to me audibly here yeah. Yeah, and i still got to make a decision right mm-hmm. so uh but i think um you know, divine providence is seen in retrospect. And I do believe though, there's an element of faith, uh, as we move through life and we make decisions. Yep. And by faith, I mean a belief, a belief, that there is God, uh, a personal God who's out there with a hand that's moving and working. And in faith, we're asking to, to know and understand what his plan is for our lives. Mm-hmm. That's faith. if, you know, if I'm, and, and I've been in this position too, right? I wasn't living by faith. I was just living for pleasure. That didn't work for me. I mean, right. I always right. tell my friends that are doing it, give it a shot. Let me know if it pays dividends, but it didn't for me. Yeah, I right. just hurt a lot of people and ended up miserable. Yeah. So uh, I think that's a decision of faith, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, am I going to live for pleasure? Or is there something more? Right. Is it possible that God is personal? What are my circumstances saying to me and how am I made? And I really need community to to help me understand that, right? I need a friend who's watched me for decades, (laughs) who's seen me in various environments and and the way that I move and operate and the things that I do help me understand how I'm made and what my gifts and talents are. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I don't believe that you can do anything you want to do if it's in your heart and you desire it. I'm never going to play in the NBA, never was, wasn't going to happen.
2: Yeah. You
1: know, so that's sort of a, a foolish notion, right? Right. We're all made in a particular way. The more accurate we are in assessing ourselves, the better prepared we are to take what we have to the market mm-hmm. and do what we do in the market.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I'm curious if you're, again, looking back in retrospect, if you're getting cut from the baseball team helped you with rejection in L.A.? You know, because I'm, I'm sure, I am imagine you didn't. Well, you know, I think
1: two different circumstances. Uh, all my eggs were in one basket with baseball. Yeah. And again, so again, I, you know, for me, my, my faith in God is primary, but within the religious, uh, uh oh, gosh, discipline that I operate out of
2: mm-hmm.
1: there's talk about ordered loves. So we have to order our loves in life. And if you disorder your loves then you have a disordered heart and mind, so my, when I was playing baseball, my loves were disordered because baseball was prime. It was at the top. Mm. And so that was a different circumstance, not the case with acting. As yep. I told you, I prayed a lot about acting. That was third or fourth on the list. When I went out to LA, mm. I knew that there would be other things for me to do out there. I wanted to build relationships, make friends. Uh, uh, I ended up having four kids in LA. <laughs> we helped start a church with the Presbyterian denomination we were working with Afghan kids. We were housing children in the summer that needed medical care. Wow! We yeah. had a lot of purpose out there as a, as a couple and family. So again, I, I was much better at ordering my loves in LA. Mm-hmm. And so the rejection with the acting, though, was tough. Uh, it, it didn't hurt because my entire life wasn't banking on that one. Thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, 100%. Yeah. What would, uh, I'm sure, yeah, what would you say, uh was one of the bigger things that you learned from getting cut from baseball and
1: well that circumstance i learned that i've got i've got to prioritize my my loves that that's uh in la getting rejected i got pretty good at it i mean i'm pretty tough skin and it's been helpful with my kids because we all know that a lot, we lose a lot of times in life. If you're competing, you're going to lose. Right. Mm-hmm. So I got pretty used to losing. I, I mean, I probably would book one in 20 auditions. Mm-hmm. So man, you're, you know, you're fighting the fight. And I, I just, you know, I, I think, I, I think that was helpful for me. Practically. I got pretty tough skinned with the rejection with auditions and not getting jobs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think you've got to, otherwise you're not going to make it in that business. Right. That yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, switching gears kind of more to your, um, seminary and and divinity you know your degree in divinity you said you went back and you studied the more just greek and hebrew the original text of the you know old and new testament the purpose of that being that there's less uh less lost in the translation of what we use now in the current form of the bibles the various versions of the bible or what was what was the reason to to just getting back to the actual
1: well, the, the, the re- I started reading a, a lot of existential philosophy mm-hmm. um, and, and particularly Albert Camus. And he sort of rocked my, my world because he was so brutally honest. But yet the conclusion that he drew was that there's no God. Mm-hmm. And really the best thing that we can do is, in life is to sort of face this meaninglessness that we find ourselves in with acts of love, which I admired. I thought, you know, I think he even coined the term like, I don't. I'm getting this wrong, but sort of like this heroic virtue where I'm, I'm trying to love and serve others, but really, there's no reason for it. But the Mm -hmm. fact that I'm doing it is pretty heroic, you know. And Mm -hmm. and I, I thought he was honest, and I admired. But then I I started having you know questions about that. I'm like, wow, you know, if you read Camus or Sartre or these guys, they were all post enlightenment philosophers who rejected traditional religion and came to the conclusion that, you know, and this was on the heels of the scientific revolution. So we just live in a material world. Mm -hmm. That's really all that there is. There's nothing that's supernatural. There's no metaphysical, and we're here. We're sort of a biological accident that's evolved. Uh, You know, we're sort of a a flash in the pan and then it's over and we die. like, man, Uh, I kind of started wondering about that and it was Mm -hmm. depressing to me, Um, but I thought, I want to be honest and truthful enough. If that's the case, then tell me the truth and let's yeah. go that direction. Yeah. But uh, so I was wrestling with those ideas, but then I needed some other options too. And my view of the scripture was pretty shallow, kind of Sunday school oriented. Yep. And so what I had been taught in church wasn't weighty enough to really counter. Mm. Uh, these these heavier ideas and these very thoughtful philosophers that I was reading. So mm. as far as the bio, uh, that's a big issue. Um, uh, so I don't know. How much do you want to get into that?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I definitely want to keep, uh, you know, I want to talk about Basi- Revi- Re- reliability of religious
1: okay. texts is a huge issue. Okay. I'll, I'll try to, I'll just distill it down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the Bible Genesis through revelation, uh, covers about 4,000 years. Mm. There's several types of, uh, literature from narrative to poetry, to wisdom sayings, to, uh, the gospels, to letters that the apostle Paul wrote to the growing church communities in the first century. Yep. So f- first of all, when you read the Bible, you've got to understand the context. And so, a lot of fundamentalists don't do that. And that's why we're like, this guy's beat me up with these little trite sayings and he'll throw out a verse. But people don't understand the overarching narrative to a book that was uh, that, that's comprised of thousands and thousands of years of information and has different categories of literature. So you really need to become a student of this body. It's a library of work, right?
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, it is an event based uh compilation of literature the new testament especially is a reported event and the primary reported event in the new testament is the red the bodily resurrection of christ right now we have to ask ourselves so what happened though post enlightenment this is what the this is what the academics of that time did when they decided that the only thing that can be true is what i processed through my five senses they automatically negated anything supernatural so Mm -hmm. surely those stories are not legitimate. They're, they're trumped up. Uh, you know, they, it's propaganda that, that, that instigated a movement probably to kind of fight the Roman empire or to overturn relig- Jewish Orthodox, you know, there's some ill motive, Right. Right. but, uh, I don't believe that that's true, but that's kind of where you get this idea that the Bible is, is you know, comprised of myth. Right. And it's not anything that's anchored in reality. Uh, but if you read the gospels, they're their uh direct reports of an event and the first uh the early documents start about 60 ad Mm. now that's a good 20 or 30 years after this reported resurrection event and um, they started compiling the oral stories that uh, they had and then um they as they wrote these oral stories down they compiled those stories and so when i studied the greek we had a a book basically which would show you the variances of all the documents from 60 AD up until the 1800, I mean, Mm -hmm. there's probably 5,000 documents. Um, And so like, if you and I were looking at all these documents and let's say we scattered them all out on the floor of our living room and we put them in chronological order and we started highlighting the differences as they have been relayed through history, we would discover in this one book that I have shows you this, there's only a 5% variance. Hmm. In these these documents, and it's it's on minor facts like hmm. how many shepherds there were at the birth of Christ, but when it comes to big events and you know the the primary uh, uh, idea behind uh, something that Jesus had to say or a miracle, they're all in agreement. So hmm. I found that they're reliable. But now, how we take these stories and we translate these stories is again exegesis, and then. Uh, you know, application, that's a whole nother thing to to, to talk about. But anyway, did that help you at all?
0: It totally (laughs) did. And it it fascinates me because that's a big part of uh, very similar to what you said. Like I just have a Sunday school education and a lot of that growing up, I was checking out because mom Mm -hmm. and dad had me there because I was supposed to be there and I didn't want to be there. And uh, but I do feel this tug on my heart
1: Personally, I recommend a couple of guys for you. Do you know who Jordan Peterson is? Yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, you can go to YouTube, Mm -hmm. listen to some of, so he'll take these Old Testament narratives, Mm -hmm. Adam and Eve, Noah. And again, people are like, who, these are stupid stories. They're children's stories. Who would base their life or have faith? Listen to Jordan Peterson talk about. The, the, the symbols in these stories, the rela- relational dynamic and what and the truths that they convey mm-hmm. and whether or not they're reflective of reality. And there's another guy named Jonathan Pagiao, who's a, an artist. He's Canadian and he's connected with Jordan. Uh, he talks a lot about symbolism, but listen to him, too. I've, I've learned a lot from those guys and they've been really helpful.
0: Okay, that's really, really cool. And I think yeah. those that, that are listening are probably taking notes on that because I think – yeah, <clears throat> I was listening to something yesterday about uh, – excuse me, let me uh, clear my throat – with Jordan Peterson. Um, and it's just – yeah, he's he's so good. So I'm a – uh, that, that
1: guy's my hero, man. He, yeah. Uh, he – he's really – stuck to his guns uh in the midst of a lot of pushback and fight and uh and i I appreciate him (laughs) yeah yeah he's done a a great job for sure he's
0: so smart um in many different ways yeah Yeah. well i I certainly i feel like we could talk about just this for an hour um but just kind of there's so many things i want to talk about in your story which i think is pretty cool i want to touch on just your experience of of um being involved in the reconciliation of of what was going on between Croatia and Bosnia. And I, and I experienced just, there was Bosnians in St. Louis when I was growing up and some of the nicest, hardest working people. Um, but I, I almost couldn't like, there was what, there's a war and they came like, yeah. I can't even put it in context. And now of course as an adult to experience that type of mm-hmm. upheaval, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's not like COVID, but you know, something where it totally changes your landscape yeah. Pretty quickly. And then you're moving to a completely different country, another part of the world. I just cannot imagine. But what, what was your experience of going over there and working with people? And
1: Gosh, you know, yeah. You know, I, as Americans, we've been pretty fortunate, right? Yeah. Uh, I read William Styron's a favorite author of mine. He's a fictional author. Mm-hmm. He wrote the book Sophie's Choice. You know, Sophie survived Auschwitz, but her big dilemma was when she was in Auschwitz and she was standing there with her two children the, the commandant of the camp made her choose one of the kids to live and one to die
0: oh Jesus! so of course
1: that sent her over the edge uh uh mentally but uh what was my point behind that uh anyway oh and so styron though his primary character in the book is at duke university in a fraternity and he's mm-hmm. like so while sophie's making a choice which of her children will die in Auschwitz I'm drinking beer with the fraternity guys, you know. Mm-hmm. That was me, right? I mm-hmm. I was that guy. I and I think most Americans are that way because we've lived such a protected life yeah. and we've yeah. grown up doing easy and fun stuff, kind of wasting our time and the people in other places that really suffer. That's the case in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. I just summarized my you know, without uh, without forgiveness there cannot be reconciliation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what I learned, but it is very hard to forgive when people have murdered your relatives, you right. know? Yeah. And so the question is, where can we find forgiveness? Uh, and, and how is that? And, and, you know, again, the saying of Jesus is if you don't know how much you've been forgiven, or if you haven't been forgiven, it's really hard for you to forgive somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so we really use Jesus Christ as a touchstone for this concept of forgiveness mm. and reconciliation. So mm. Without forgiveness, there can't be reconciliation. There can't be peace or unity. Mm-hmm. And that's what I learned. But that's very easy to say. You know, I don't know about you. If you've ever had anybody that's really hurt you or a family member. Sure. I can think of some really extreme cases. If somebody hurt one of my kids, to be honest, I'd probably want to kill him. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to forgive him or reconcile him. I would. I would need some supernatural help to move yeah. in that direction. But yeah. that's, yeah. that's kind yeah. of summarizes my time there.
0: Yeah, completely. It reminds me of what you said, you know, uh, at the beginning of this, which is like, it's, as the saying goes, it's really easy to kill from afar, really yeah. difficult to, to kill or hate up close. Right. And that same type of thing I think relates to what we're talking about with God. It's, it's kind of easy. If you feel a sense of detachment from God, long distance, it's kind of hard to, I mean, it's easy to feel like you've been forgotten or to, to be angry. It's, it's a lot more difficult to, to be angry when you have that type of intimate relationship, whether we're talking God or in some type of, you know.
1: Yeah. But there, there are all these barriers to those relationships, you know? Right. right. Uh, you know, I, I, Tim Keller is a favorite speaker of mine, but he says, there are three reasons people don't believe in God. They don't believe in God because uh, they have in- genuine and, and sincere intellectual concerns, which mm-hmm. are, that's respectable. I totally get that. They've been hurt. They've suffered in life an injustice that they, you know, they can't process. Mm-hmm. And why, why would a good God allow this sort of pain and suffering and injustice? Mm-hmm. And I really sympathize with that pain. And, you know, I can't give anybody a quick answer on that but that's one reason they reject the idea of God or even a good God. And then finally, and, and this is, this is, this is a little more obvious and I guess uh, I I get this one is pride. Mm. If I admit there's a God then I'm responsible to a higher power. Right. Mm. And he has uh, expectations for me and he has a design for me and I didn't in pride. I want to do what the hell I want to do. Right. Yeah. So there's some surrender involved. If, God actually exists. So, three good reasons why we we can move away from God. Two of those I have a lot of empathy for and understanding. The third one I identify with and know that mm-hmm. I, I can be an sob just like the next guy until I write it. Up, you know, I'm going to do what I want including God. I've had right. to over. I still am trying to overcome that. Right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. And I. And I. But I. I would say you know, having gone through a divorce and various other challenges in my life, I do feel like those challenges is what really pushed me to you know, increase and, and lean on God and, and has really helped my faith in the long run. Otherwise it was just easy. Most of my upbringing in many regards. And that's why I was like, eh, I didn't have a whole lot of need to rely on a, on a higher power. Yeah. Point, right. Yeah. So
1: what I love about AA, I mean, you're talking, you know, you're saying a difficult circumstance humbled you mm-hmm. and you found yourself in need, right? I love AA. What's the first thing you meant, admit, you know, I'm out, I'm out of control and I need help. Mm-hmm. That's, As much as that seems like it's a terrible place, it may be your gateway to freedom, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So isn't that great that God uh, uses the worst stuff to really liberate us?
0: Yeah, I grew up with a saying um, that trials are proofs of God's care. Yes. And, and, and I, that's always kind of resonated with me. I'm like, okay, you know, God wouldn't give you anything that you couldn't handle. Um, and a lot of it is like, it's me going uh, willingly going into the gym because for this to grow, you know, this bicep, it needs resistance and needs demand, you know, and, yeah. and I feel like yeah. we are no different physically, emotionally, spiritually. Right. So I think that's pretty powerful. What, just talking quick second, cause we could t- again, talk so much about your acting career. What was one of the bigger lessons that you took just out of um, that type of endeavor and, and having the, the cojones to go after dream when, when so many people were saying, you're crazy, what are you yeah. doing? Um, but you, you know, you wrote down that, you know, you've appeared in really big shows like Grey's Anatomy and The Mentalist and uh CSI Miami Nashville a lot of shows that I think people would be like oh really no that's awesome um but then you also can say that you don't necessarily feel like I don't know people would say look at your resume like you said and be like dude you know even to have appearances on that's pretty cool but what did you learn through that whole experience of being in LA and
1: being an actor so the the first is you can never uh you can't want to be an actor to be rich and famous Mm. It, it won't carry you through the fight And just like sports, uh, acting was, I hate the word passion. It's so worn out, but, uh, Mm -hmm. it was really a, I mean, I just loved it. I would get as much joy out of an audition or putting up a scene in class as I would working on Grey's Anatomy, Mm -hmm. maybe even more. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so the love of the discipline is what drew me to acting. And then there's a couple of things that I can get really excited about this, but, you know what you get to do when you're an actor? You get to say whatever the hell you want to say and do whatever you want to do. <laughs> and in society, we have constraints, right? And that's and very good. I mean, I can't, you know, go around saying what I'm honestly thinking all the time to my wife, my kids, to the clerk at the store. So these are all good things. It keeps our society in check and we're well-mannered. But when you're acting, and I don't think that people, you're, you're actually not, you're not mimicking something you're releasing genuine uh organic emotion Mm. and very seldom do people get to do that but when you're up on stage and i loved it judith weston was my acting coach and she's kind of famous and well-known she's written books for most of the rtf programs across in the world really Mm. but she would always say when you're up on stage you can be you can not be but you can let out whatever you want. And there are no boundaries or no rules. Cool. And I'm gonna tell you, that was a real release for me. Uh, so, uh, you know, to be up on stage and to see, you know, I'm in a in, in, in scene with a beautiful woman and to feel love for her or to be in a scene with a guy. And I mean, just wanting to, you know, being able to, to release anger and to really, you know, I can unload on him. I, you know, I had all this, this reservoir of emotion and anger that I could release. Of course it is safe because it's on stage, right? It's not, but you could really release it. And so I I love that about it. And then the other principle in acting is, and this is true about joke telling stand up comedy, telling a story to a personal friend dancing. If you're not all in it ain't going to work. And so you'll notice that with people, They'll try to do something funny. I tell my kids this all the time and they don't fully commit and it doesn't work. (laughs) So in acting, I learned to fully commit. Like if Mm. I'm going to, if I'm going to hate you, I'm going to hate you. And I'm going to let it go. Mm. And uh, if I'm going to love you, I'm going to love you with everything in my heart in this moment. Mm. So I just loved acting for that reason. In that little fishbowl, everything was legal. Everything within you Mm. could surface and you could connect and relate to people. And the connection, what's interesting too with acting is uh, if there's not a relation, relational connection between the actors, it's not interesting to watch.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So think about uh, Goodwill honey Hunting. Mm-hmm. That final scene where, uh, 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 gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Who are the two actors? Uh, Damon, Damon and Affleck. Remember, so... Dame, uh, uh Damon is like, Affleck's like, dude, you're stuck here and you're brilliant. And if I come back here and pick you up tomorrow morning, then I basically, I, I realize you're choosing to limit yourself and really to fail and to live this sort of obscure existence and never do what you're supposed to do. Right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they go through this. It's really dynamic. And mm-hmm. you're standing by the car, remember? But the reason that those guys are best friends in real life. Mm-hmm. And so it's the connection that's powerful. And you really see that Affleck really care. You know, those emotions that he was funneling, I'm guessing uh, uh, toward Damon, uh, they, had, they were filtered through the words of the scene and yeah, that yeah. scenes in a particular context of a story. But I guarantee you that amor- emotion was organic and real. Totally so nice. that's, that's what makes acting work, is the yeah. connection between. So it's a, it's a wonderful discipline. I loved it. I still miss it a lot, but, you know, family is kind of a priority for me right now.
0: Yeah, I understand that. And I, and I think, but it, it resonates with, you know, my, I was telling you before we started recording at my most recent men's meeting, a big uh-huh. part of that uh, resonates in its own way in the sense of like, I do feel like, especially as men, if we've got anger and rage, it's, it's really hard to get that out because yeah. if are we were to actually show it, Yeah. probably women and children, other people would not feel safe, right? Oh, so no. where do we go to let that out? you know, and then well, typically we drink,
1: yeah. we can let it out then. Right. You yeah. had those friends that drink and suddenly like they're a monster and want to kick everybody's ass in the bar. I was like, but, but you're right. Where, do, where do we as men let that out? Yeah. Great. Yeah. great. Yeah. What, yeah. what were you going to say?
0: Well, I think that's just important that you, you found a healthy release for it. Uh, a great example of it, but that uh, also, it's the kind of the connection between Matt Damon and uh, Ben Affleck is like that people see that, you know, that connection on, on screen, but then also men crave that just in our day-to-day lives. They yeah. don't get a whole of that. You know, they might have it with their intimate partner, but other than that, we get so kind of isolated in our lives. Yeah, and I, I hate I hate to
1: say it, but women can't do for men, what men can do for men. Yeah. Yeah. And men can't do for men what women can do for men. You right, know? Right. But your, your friends can I always tell my friends, you can, I can handle, there's things you can tell, you can't tell your wife, you She can't handle it, yeah. but I can handle it. Yeah. You know, whatever it is, it could be rage. It could be I'm looking at my secretary and, uh, you know, what I can. So you're right. Yeah. And I think men are a great place where we can deal with this, you know, very powerful emotion that men have. Uh, And I think there are other outlets to exercise, uh, you know, but I think first identifying it, articulating what's going on. Yeah. Uh, actually releasing emotion. I, I I'm, you know, I, I've seen a lot of men cry over their relationships with their dads.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They'd never dealt like, with it. You so know, what did Thoreau say? The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Well, it's tough when we, we remain quiet and desperate. Mm-hmm. Bad things happen, right?
0: absolutely Well, we see it almost every single day especially like up here in boulder and shooting with the uh, shootings yeah yeah Yeah. it's it's really sad and i think a lot of that does you know my girlfriend was asking like why does this happen it's like i don't i don't know personally but i do feel like this is this is for the mass of men a big issue and it's the it's the boiling of the the pressure pot that you know finally pops off and it's in the form of significance and power. And even if it's like, this is my last stand, it's really, really yeah. sad, you know, but yeah. it's, it's it goes to why I do this podcast and why I want to have conversations. Yeah, you know, if you don't like, see a lot of
1: women, yeah. uh, killing people with, with guns. Nope. Women don't, the, the, the masculine, the masculine personality has energy mm-hmm. and that energy is going to go somewhere mm-hmm. and, uh, it needs to go. Toward responsibility and love and care and service, right? But if we feel like we're failing or you know we're in trouble, and that that energy builds into rage and anger, mm-hmm. then it can it can go out sideways and we can really get into trouble. And mm-hmm. again, you know, I have my own areas where when I had that hidden rage that I, I go for release. Um, uh, for me, it was typically in the area of sex, sexuality. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, but. We all have those things that we turn to, you know, we self-medicate or whatever.
0: Right. And then shame ourselves oftentimes <clears throat> as yeah. men for doing yeah. it after the fact, which I think is even worse, you know, because it makes us feel like we are a bad person, you know, yeah. and that's really, that's really tough. So I do feel like the more guys hear other men like you and all the work that I'm doing, like, okay, we're not alone. You know, there's uh, got be a healthy there's got to be a healthy release um, and yeah. new tools if you will otherwise we just keep doing the same thing to new generations right
1: And yeah. I, you know I commend you with what you're doing because men who are isolated aren't necessarily going to volunteer mm-hmm. but that requires that some of us go out and pursue men right mm-hmm. and engage and develop friendships and they've got to be proactive about that right and you're gonna right. get rejected and men are going to stiff arm you but I, you know I have a best friend. He's been my best friend since I was 15. Yeah. The best thing he ever said to me when we were 20, because we he was at Texas A&M and I was at Texas Tech, but we were together one summer. I'd never had anybody ask me this. I was 20 years old. He goes, uh, "So, man, how you doing?" And I go, "I'm doing pretty good." He goes, "Oh, no, really? How are you doing?" I'd never had anybody really ask me. Yeah. And man, I just opened up. Mm. But I think that we have to pursue men. And really, with a lot of sincere care and love, ask them, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. Because we all struggle. I mean, it's just, it's a fact,
0: right? Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, I think a lot of men who are isolated and don't necessarily have the, the support they need, they they suffer a ton. And, and I think a big part of... Um, you know, what I, what I can see in terms of business, I feel like partnership, you know, and I kind of want to talk about last thing. I want to talk about your, your relationship with your spouse and that sort of thing with your kids. But I do feel like whether you're looking at um, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Richard Branson, like all these successful, they always had a, a number two guy that was kind of in the shadows, you know, uh-huh. but yeah. just yeah. as supportive, yeah. you know, and uh-huh. not just uh, so I feel like that dynamic of having uh, a partner in life it's so powerful to be able to support each other in our individual life goals. And of course you can come together and, and have children. If that's something that someone wants to do, but what, what has, I mean, you mentioned at the very beginning of this, and it's funny, we're just now getting to it, but your, your family, your wife, your kids, your two boys, your two girls, like that's kind of like the, the apple of your eye. What, what's been the, the more cherishing part of, having a family, raising a family, doing it with, with Stacy and that sort of thing.
1: Man. Well, I mean, it, it really is my entire life. And, uh, I just, you know, I could never, unless you've parented you, it's hard to understand, but investing in, in somebody's life from birth to adulthood is Mm -hmm. remarkable.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: There's nothing more rewarding. There hasn't been for me than that. Mm. I've got a 16 year old that's about to start driving and to see who she's become Mm. sort of person. She is, uh, you know, each kid's different. God's made each of them a different person with a different But, uh, it's just been an amazing project that my wife and I have been able to work on together and we're in it together. We're partnered and we're on the same page. And, uh, you know, ultimately I guess it's rewarding because it involves love and, and, and love means that we're, laying our lives. I always, you know, I tell my kids, I go, I don't, they never show disrespect for the mother because all, they they'll pay the price, but <laughs> she literally has given everything she has, including her body yeah. so that they could live. Yeah. She birthed them. Mm. She breastfed them until her breasts weren't there anymore. <laughs> yeah. Know, she, yeah, She's given everything, you know? And, and I think that principle in life plays true across the board. If, you know, no, Jesus said this, no, no greater love is there in life that a, a friend would lay down his life for. It's true for anybody.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You lay down your life for your friend, your spouse, your children. You're really experiencing what love's all about. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I'm diminishing myself so that you can live. Mm-hmm. That dynamic is, is primary in life. And, mm-hmm. and again, in my opinion, that's what God's done for me. So I'm trying to with his help mimic his sort of love to to my family but it's been great I, I love my family
0: yeah hundred oh, percent what what would you say is were some of those things that you looked for or maybe stumbled into um, that allowed you to to choose a a great partner in your life
1: well, making the wrong choice multiple times <laughs> yeah. because I had a bunch of uh you know i had a I had an alcoholic mother who uh drank pretty much drank herself to death, sadly mm. enough. Mm. So my relationship with her was strained. So that opposite sex dynamic really informs how it is you'll relate to the opposite sex as you move into adulthood, right? Totally. By the way, totally reconciled with a mother lover, no ill feelings, really reconciled with her before she she died when I think I was 30. But uh mm. Mm. but uh so I took that opposite sex relationship dynamic into my relationship with women. And I was terrible. Mm. I was like, take it or leave it controlling. I don't like the way I was domineering and it was horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, And then pretty selfish too. You know, it's mostly about me ego driven. I remember in college realizing that I, I had a girlfriend in college. I'm not exaggerating. She was probably the most beautiful girl on campus and I remember thinking, why am I, she was almost like an extension of me. Her beauty said more about me Mm -hmm. than really my concern for her or what I thought about her. Now, Mm -hmm. that's real simple. I mean, I'm sure I cared about her at some level. But so I had some horrible, and and it took me probably five to seven years to really work through what was going on in me internally. So by the time that I met my wife, I was healthy, Mm -hmm. but I had to get healthy. Right. And, uh, I was pretty unhealthy and you not, know, we all do that. Right. We all start out in deficits in some area. Yeah. Given our nuclear family.
0: Yep. Yep. How were you doing the work though? How did you do it during those five to seven? years? Oh, it's a lot of
1: counseling. Um, at one point, what, uh, and I kind of went through the seventh step of AA where I went back and I don't know what step it is. I apologized and reconciled. Yeah. I actually went back to these girls and I had dinner with them and they, I, three of them, We're pretty grateful. I think one of them may have thought I was crazy, but I just said, I'm sorry. You know, I was, I didn't treat you. And so anyway, uh, that was part of the process was, you know, trying to reconcile and just, you know, tell people I apologize. Uh, And then understanding, you know, Al-Anon and Alcoholics and codependency. I mean, I had a lot of hangups and really all that, you know, that's all a bunch of psychological mumbo or jumbo, but really what I had was a great defense system. If I walk around, if you and I live together and I got to punch you in the face every day, man, you're going to learn to distance yourself.
2: Mm-hmm. You might
1: learn how to punch back or counter, mm-hmm. bob and weave. You might learn how to throw a baseball at me, right? <laughs> yeah. I had all those things, man. I had a, a defense system in place mm-hmm. that really left me alone. And, uh, you know, that those self-protection strategies hurt. So it took a long time for me to unwind those. Mm-hmm. And part of that involved sort of what we we're talking about the release of anger and bitterness and animosity. And so, and it was not an overnight process. It took a while. Well,
0: it's really good to hear because I think, uh, I think a lot of guys feel broken and they, they, the more I kind of explain my own repressed anger and how that's showing up in my life and neither the numbness or the anger, but what's the anger really covering up? The anger is covering up sadness, loneliness, disappointment. Yeah. Guys yeah. are like, yes, me too. I told, oh my gosh, like I'm not the only one. That's amazing. But I do feel like then then the next question is like, okay, so what do I do with it? And mm-hmm. you're saying it's a long process. You have to go to counseling, yeah. coaching, get whatever it is, just get a lot of help. Start talking about it. I feel like that's a yeah. big part yeah. of releasing is talking about it, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but but it's again, cool to see a guy in your position at this point in your life where you've had, that's, that's kind of a crappy childhood, you know, to have a mom who's, you know, well, I'll tell you the tu-
1: I'll tell you the toughest part about it, and I've got a friend who I feel like is is really good with this issue. Yeah, and that's the issue of shame. Mm-hmm. So, man, shame is powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we develop a lot of responses to personal shame. Yep. But uh, you know, if you have an alcoholic in your family, and that that's somebody that's acting out and doing embarrassing things. You you have shame. Mm -hmm. Um, or if you've yourself have done something that you're horribly embarrassed about, you know, something that, you know, others know. So shame can just squash you. Uh, and, and, and shame is, I don't want you to see who I really am. Right. Mm -hmm. So it isolates you. So part of opening up is exposing your shame, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm uh, but how do we find the courage to expose our shame and who do we expose it to? Yeah. We can only expose our shame to the person we know that loves us anyway,
2: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm.
1: That, you know, I, I had an older guy that mentored me and he had a long process of getting to know each other. But he asked me one day, he said, look, I've told you who I am. How well do you want me to know who you are? And I, I wouldn't tell him the truth about myself, which really involves some shameful stuff mm-hmm. and some shameful places that I had been because I didn't want him to see my shame because what was my fear? He would reject me, right? Like, you'll you'll know how terrible I am. Mm. When I was able to expose my shame to him and talk about the events and places and things that I had done, and I got no reaction out of him. I actually felt like he loved me more. A light bulb went off in my head, and that is that if I expose my shame and I'm that vulnerable with the right person, it actually draws them to me. Mm. you don't you don't guess that do you Mm
2: -mm. that's
1: not that's not instinctive Mm -mm. uh but exposing your shame to a good buddy will only draw him to you because you know what he recognizes the humanity in you because he knows he's human right so that's a that's huge
0: it's like vulnerability begets vulnerability Um, and you think someone's going to stomp on you um but in 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 reality i think especially in an intimate relationship the more vulnerable more authentic you know, transparent you are with your skeletons in your closet, the more actually people like, Oh my gosh, like, thank you. And then here's, you know, there's, there's that rule of reciprocity. Which is, which is
1: another reason why people I think are leery of, you know, any, any sort of ideas or thoughts about God, because their perception is God wants me to be moral. And if I'm not moral, he's going to get me. Mm -hmm. He wants me to perform morally. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's not, that's the wrong, I don't like that God either. That's the wrong, the God that I know is full of mercy and grace, right? And understands my experience on this earth because he uh, was incarnate in a person, person of Christ. Christ understands my struggles. So again, I think, you know, we tend to move away from faith if we think that God's judgmental, like we might think a friend is judgmental. Who wants a judgmental friend? Again, I love AA. A's the great, I have a buddy that's an alcoholic. I know it's terrible to say. He and I went to see you two in Dublin. Yeah. He goes, all right, man, I got us GA tickets. We got on a plane. He goes, but you know, while we're there, you, you got to go to my meetings with me. And I go, great. So I went to, I think, three A meetings while we were in Dublin. Loved them. I mean, these people are just who they are. Mm-hmm. There's no shame. You talk about where you've been and you're received with open arms and people want the best for you. They're rooting for you. And it's just beautiful. And I think that embodies the spirit of God and his mercy and grace. And which is why, you know, is rooted in, you know, belief in a higher power. Right. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. anyway, I, uh, James, a powerful tool, to, I mean, a powerful barrier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, but, uh, but also could be a tool to, like you said, to really take the layers off and to yeah. take the mask so Let me ask off. you this.
1: One, one more point I'll make about, you know, assuming there's a spiritual world out there. Mm-hmm. So the lie would be that shame, your, your shame will repel everyone and will lead to judgment and condemnation, and they'll think mm-hmm. you're terrible, right? Mm-hmm. So where do we get that lie from? I don't, that's just a question to leave out there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if the truth is, and you only know this through experience, that if I am vulnerable with the right person and I show them my shame, it draws them to me, mm-hmm. then there really is a spiritual battle, and it's a battle of truth and lies, right? completely so we're living in one of those two worlds and that's why i think we need good mature friends who help us discern truth from lie you know
0: couldn't agree with you more and which is why i think that the call upon men especially these days you know and women are calling out to for for men to uh step up as that man 2.0 version or 3.0 version you know it's like let's evolve here guys is uh uh, you're either going to get left in the dust or you're going to have to evolve into a, a more healed integrated man, you know, and it takes a yeah. lot of effing work
1: but Yeah, it's worth
0: it. You know, it's totally yeah. worth it. So yeah. it's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for having. Out. me yeah, so out. There's so many good things to, to talk about that. Uh, like I said, we could go on for another couple of hours, honestly. So maybe this would be part one of yeah. many parts in the future. So, but anyways, thank you for who you are. Thanks for the example of, you know, father and businessman and uh god-fearing man that you are i think it's been an impressionable one on on the listeners the viewers and um if if anyone wanted to to maybe they just called upon to to connect with you how could someone maybe just reach out or get in touch social media or anything like that
1: yeah i've got a i've got a public facebook page so they could reach me there Okay. Which would be what? Just um, I think it's just, if you Google my name, you'll see it. Boo Arnold, Arnold.
0: B-O-O-A-R-N-O-L-D. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Very cool, you guys. Well, thank you again for for joining us. Uh, I really do hope that you got at least one good nugget. I'm sure you got maybe 10 out of this good conversation. But if you want to reach out to Boo, feel free. Until we chat again, thanks for joining me on the Johnny King Show. All right. Thanks. Hey, give some love to my
1: friend, Dirk, man.
0: I will. I will. I will. All right. All right. Take care. Enjoy it, Johnny. All right. Thank later. you. See you. Bye. And I want to thank you so much for listening to The Johnny King Show. And hey, if you got something positive from this episode, please subscribe to the show, share it on your favorite social platform, and then tag me in it so I can say hi. It would also mean the world to me if you wrote a review of the show on Apple Podcasts because I read every single one. Do you feel like there's something that I could be doing better? Awesome. I totally thrive on constructive feedback, and it's always welcome. So if you've got questions or concerns, you can always reach me via email at podcast at johnny And then please follow me on Instagram at Johnny King, Facebook.com backslash Johnny King men's coach on my YouTube channel and LinkedIn. Thanks again for joining me. I've been Johnny King, you've been amazing, and we'll catch up with you next time. Take care.